Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Dear Deirdre podcast with me, Sally Land, the Sun's resident agony aunt. Yes, we're taking the Sun's legendary advice column from the page to podcast. Every episode, I'll be giving my advice on your real life dilemmas. We'll be covering everything from sex and relationships to money and careers to managing your mental health and much, much more. And I won't be doing it alone, as each week I'll be joined by special expert guests and some of your favourite celebs too. So, if you're struggling with a problem and feel like you need some advice, the Dear Deirdre team is here to help. You can send your problems to deardeirdre at the-sun.co.uk. We answer every single letter sent to us and there's no problem too big, too small or too embarrassing. But for now, it's on with the show. This week, we're tackling common health concerns from backache to erectile dysfunction and even snoring. To many, these problems can lead to frustration, mental health troubles and even more serious health worries. So, it's important that these are faced head-on and early with discussions as we'll hear on this episode. And I'm not diagnosing on my own. I am indeed joined by the fantastic Dr Zoe Williams, who's a TV personality and a super experienced NHS GP. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to just start off the episode by asking you a couple of sort of rapid fire questions. So first of all, what was it that actually inspired you to become a GP? Do you remember how old you were? Yeah, I mean, I was three years old when I first quite steadfastly declared that I would be a doctor. Wow. Um, so my my grandma, who emigrated to the UK from Jamaica, she was actually a dressmaker in Jamaica, but when she came here, she became a midwife. And she bought me a little sort of the nurse's doctor kit when I was three years old for my birthday. And I loved it. And, you know, she said, are you going to be a midwife like me when you grow up? And I was like, no. So my mum said, oh, are you going to be a nurse? And I apparently stamped my feet and said, no, I will be a doctor. And and that was kind of my mind made up. I was always fascinated by anything medical, the human body, by people. There really wasn't anything else I wanted to do. And I think the other thing that inspired me was my own doctor. So I had quite severe asthma as a child. So I was under a lovely paediatrician called Dr Thistlethwaite at Burnley General Hospital. And I just adored him. And I think he probably further inspired me to want to be a doctor. That is incredible. At three years old, I don't think I could do my shoelaces then. <laughs> I don't think I could do mine either, but I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Interesting. I love that. And, you, and you've achieved it. 
Yeah, and it wasn't easy. I didn't take the sort of standard route of GCSE's A-levels medical school. I had to go around the houses and, you know, pretty much had to force my way into into medical school. But I found a way. And uh, yeah, and here I am. Yeah, I love it. Testament to dedication and determination. I think so. I think that self-belief, determination and hard work, I think. But the other thing is, you know, you could say look... Or I more think that it's a searching for opportunities, not waiting for opportunities to land in front of you in your path, but actively seeking any glimmer of an opportunity. And when you can just about get your fingernails into that opportunity, prizing it open. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so true, isn't it, that the people who are the luckiest are the ones who work hard. I think so. As a child growing up, you know, I came from, we were a single parent family on benefits in a working class northern town. I was the only mixed race kid in my school and I had quite severe asthma. And when I was in year nine doing my options, my teachers actually said I should come up with more realistic goals because wow. they didn't believe that being a doctor was achievable. You know, my personality, that made me more determined. But, you know, I always say to young people, Some people are fortunate and privileged and opportunities, you know, they will have doors swung open for them. And some people are more likely to have doors slammed in their face. But if you get a door slammed in your face, that's not a no. That means go around the corner, see if you can find a window that's slightly ajar and just force your way in. Shimmy your way up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's such a positive message, isn't it? That you will have bad times and knockbacks but it's Mm -hmm. about resilience and don't accept no exactly and don't give up moving on to your your role as it is now what would you say is one of the most common misconceptions about what you do what a GP does I think one of the really common misconceptions would be about who a GP is so often people say oh you don't look like a GP or you don't seem like a GP. And, you know, we're just people and we're just, you know, some of us are funny, some of us are serious, some of us like to go out and party, some of us like to stay at home. So we're just like everybody else. And of course, you know, when you're at work, most people do have a persona when you're at work. So I am quite a serious person when I'm sat in my office seeing patients. And then when I'm being a doctor on TV, I'm Still quite serious, but, you know, behind the scenes, we're just normal people. And Dr. Sarah Kaya and I did something recently together for for Mother's Day. And honestly, when we're together, the two of us were so goofy and silly (laughs) that you wouldn't think we were doctors. So I think that's a big common misconception is about who GPs are. Just remember when you see a GP, sometimes they're having a bad day. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes people do have negative experiences but sometimes as GPs we have really really difficult days especially at the moment you know with dealing with lots of mental health issues and we do have a lot of resilience you have to have a lot of resilience to be a GP because sometimes you might have four or five patients in a row who are all really really struggling who are very depressed you've got very difficult life circumstances and often you can feel quite helpless because there's very little other than be supportive and be kind you can't fix their problems but it grinds you down and it grinds you down and you know sometimes then a patient comes in who is upset or is angry and patients have every right to be because patients are really struggling at the moment and you might get you know you might not get the best response so I think remember that we're normal people yeah Um, and then I think the common misconception about 
the job would be, I think people would despair if they saw how much paperwork we do. Because we have that 10 minutes. Most people know it's a 10 minute consultation. And that 10 minute clock starts really from the minute you open a patient's notes, records, and you have a quick scan of their records, their notes. Then you go and get them from the waiting room. You bring them through, you say hello. The patient might take their coat off, hang it on the back of their door. And then you ask the patient, you know, why they're there. And they'll tell you, the reasons, then you'll have some questions, then you might want to examine them, you've got to undress them. If they're somebody who has mobility issues, that could take some time, get them on the couch, you might examine them, you might get them dressed again, sat in the chair. You know, by this point, you're probably at 10 minutes. Before you've even started coming up with an explanation, with a plan, you might want to do some blood tests, you might have to print off a form, you might do a prescription, you might need to refer that patient or you want to look up some information for them and then you say goodbye, then they walk out the room. Then you've got to write up all the notes. Yes. Um, sometimes and sometimes your GP is might, ticking. It's, well, it's gone, we've gone way past 10 minutes, yeah. hasn't it? So, you know, sometimes your GP might be trying to just add a couple of notes in whilst you're there. We really want to maintain eye contact with you. but So then we write the notes, close down the file, and that's the end of the clock. And then the clock starts ticking immediately for the next one. So I think, yeah, the pressure of that 10 minutes, it's not the time we spend chatting to you. It's all of it. And then the paperwork will save to do at the end of the day usually. That is Um, so useful to know because I knew it was 10 minutes but I always thought it was the 10 minutes when the patient walks through the door to mm, when the patient leaves the door. Yeah. And so now the next time when I go to the doctors and it's 20, 30 minutes late. Yeah. I have far better insight into why that time ratchets up and the pressure that it's putting on you as the GP. Yeah. And sometimes people are struggling Mm. and when you have somebody sat across from you and they are despairing and you know you just you just can't do that in 10 minutes sometimes I'm the thought process in my mind is okay I'm gonna overrun now and I'm just gonna have to accept it and I know that that means the patients coming afterwards might be upset might be annoyed and but I can't let that get into my mind because right now this person in front of me just needs me to be calm, to be kind and listen. Yeah. And sometimes as a GP, that's all we can do. All we can do is is listen. I agree. And even our letters that we get in emails from our, our listeners, often they will sign off, just thank you for reading this. Thank yeah. you for listening to me. This yeah. has helped just being able to offload all of that. And that's even before we've been able to advise and help them support them so yeah well it's time now for our first listener letter which is a very common theme that we get sent in often this comes from a man who's struggling to keep an erection while he has sex with his girlfriend dear deirdre morning erections are not a problem and i can keep an erection when i pleasure myself it's when i try to have sex with my girlfriend that i really struggle i'm 33 and my girlfriend's 30 We've been together for two years now. I only see her once a month because we live in different parts of the country. I take Viagra to keep an erection with her. I have a strong sex drive but seem to flop when I'm with her. I don't want to keep taking pills forever. I suffer with anxiety when I'm with my girlfriend because I know I'll fail her again. Is there something wrong with me? So... It's certainly a common letter that we receive and I imagine you must see a few patients. I do see a few patients, but I would like to see more because I know that there are lots of men out there struggling with erectile dysfunction who don't come and see their GP and and I wish that they would. 
because yes. a lot of people are suffering in silence. And it is treatable and it is manageable. That's the main thing. And it's often very easy to treat, isn't it? It is. This person who's written in here has given us lots of information, yeah. which means it is quite easy to identify what seems to be the specific cause. But there are a number of causes yeah. of erectile dysfunction. Some of the common ones that are more what we call physiological, so due to the physiology of the body, would be hormonal imbalance, especially low testosterone, neurological causes, but also circulatory causes. So yeah. anything that causes circulatory problems, if you have any problems with the heart, so any blood pressure issues, then that can affect the blood vessels that supply the penis as well. But also there are mental or emotional or psychological causes. And this person who's written in has given us the clue yeah. that in this case, it is definitely more the emotional side of things because he said that he wakes up with strong morning erections and when it comes to self-pleasure he doesn't have a problem maintaining a strong erection it's just when he's with his partner and he's also given us the clue there by saying that he feels anxious he feels like he's gonna let her down yeah and this is really really common it's called performance anxiety so he's getting really wound up worried that he's not going to be able to get or maintain an erection and then that is adding to the problem and it's a vicious it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. So probably, you know, the next thing is well what what can be done? And it's always difficult, it's always the first advice, but if he can talk to his partner and open yeah. up or even just play back this podcast perhaps and say yeah. don't even need to declare that it's him, he could say oh gosh, you know, this sounds like exactly what's happening with me. That can be the first step. That can actually remove that anxiety because the problem's been shared. It's all out in the open. And sometimes that might be all it takes. Secondly, you can use various different techniques to try and focus more on the physical senses. So almost to try and get out of your mind and into your body. So making a concerted effort to think about what you're feeling with your hands or what you're seeing with your eyes having a candle burning, having some music on, so really trying to get into your physical senses can start to alleviate the anxiety. And then maybe focusing on the stress and anxiety as a separate thing. How about some guided meditation, some yoga, some breathing practices or mindfulness? Is this something you and your partner could do together in a build-up to, to having sex? Obviously, the Viagra sounds like it's working, which is fine as a short-term solution, but really these are more longer-term solutions and it sounds like in this case once you sort of crack it once you can get over that anxiety and have that confidence back it's likely to be fixed but I think the most important thing would be talking to your partner and if that's yeah. not working further down the line you know do see your GP because talking therapies like CBT can be very effective and um, and sex therapy or couples therapy potentially as well but I do think you know this sounds like a young person it's anxiety related and I think you will be able to to crack this. The yeah. first thing is yeah. trying to open up and, and share it. Yeah, and I think you've touched on something that he is quite young, isn't he? He's saying that he's 33 and a lot of people feel that there's something really, really abnormal with them if they're having erectile dysfunction when they're young. They, mm -hmm. A lot of people imagine that that's what happens when you're in your 60s and your 70s. Yes. So they feel even more embarrassed there's even more pressure which goes around and around in their head. And as you said, it just becomes this cycle, doesn't it? Yes. Of them putting more and more pressure on themselves. Yeah. So the, the really reassuring thing here is that this person can 
achieve a strong erection, is having those morning glories, as they're called, and when he's pleasuring himself. So there isn't anything wrong. Yeah. Everything's working. Yeah. It's all fine. Yeah. It's just that pressure, the stress, the anxiety yeah. of performing that is causing yeah. this issue. So it's, it's fixable. Yeah. So anyone out there, please listen. It's fixable. It's fixable. And yeah. do go and see your GP. Please, please, please do not be embarrassed to see your GP about erectile issues. And it's not just erectile issues. You know, emotions can lead also to premature ejaculation yeah. or actually just not being interested in sex. Medicines can lead to erectile issues as well. You know, antidepressants can really commonly cause issues. Any medication, heart medications can. Anything that is a muscle relaxant, chemotherapy. So if you're having erectile problems, men, please don't be shy. Go and see your GP because there are things we can do to help. Don't suffer in silence. That, again, is something I wanted to talk to you about. We have so many letters from women worried about their partners mm. and also from men who are scared of going to the GP. They're embarrassed of talking about a problem that they've got with their penis or mm. any other part of their body. What would you say to those people who are who are ashamed or embarrassed? It, this is what you're trained to do, isn't it? Help yeah. people. Oh, my gosh, this is my job. So please, please, please do not be embarrassed, ashamed. You know, we have literally seen and heard it all before. Men can be quite macho and mm. that can sometimes be a reason why they don't want to go to the exactly. GP because they, you know, I don't need help, I've, I'm fine. But actually the macho thing to do, the brave thing to do is to go and see the GP. And if you're worried about something, then I guarantee that the consultation will not be as bad as you thought it was. You'll come out the other end thinking, I wish I'd done that sooner. And if you are worried about something, there is something playing on your mind. Just think, you know, tomorrow or the next day, or, you know, it might be a couple of weeks, depending on how soon you can get an appointment, that could be alleviated. How great would you feel if that concern was lifted? And actually, if you are concerned about something, because there is genuinely something to be concerned about, if you're just sitting and letting it get worse, you know, if, for example, we're talking about something that potentially could be cancer or heart problem, um, you're let, if you're letting that get worse and you're worried, you know, the sooner you get treatment, the more treatable it is, the more curable it is, the more fixable it is. So there really just is no good reason to sit at home worrying about something or, you know, sweeping it under the carpet please just come and see your GP. We will only applaud you for it. The more embarrassing it is, <laughs> the more amazing we'll think you are for having come to see us. So there you go, gents. Please listen to Dr Zoe. <laughs> you need to go in and see her. She will not be embarrassed. She's seen it all before. We'll have a look at our second letter now. Uh, I'm sure you get lots of patients coming in complaining about this. This is on the topic of snoring. Dear Deirdre, most nights, my husband sleeps on the sofa, as his snoring is tearing us apart. I'm a nurse working long shifts, so I have to have a good night's sleep. There's nothing I like more than being able to cuddle him all night. But the snoring starts as soon as he nods off, and it's impossible for me to relax. I love him, and I don't want to spend the rest of our married life like this. What can I do? Oh. I really, I really feel for her because, mm. you know, this is a really common situation and we know that snoring can really affect relationships. 
often people have tried the simple things or the things that you can read on the NHS website. Yeah. But, but let's reel a few off. So, so the simple things are really around what can you do at bedtime itself? The first thing is always earplugs, you know, earplugs play. I'm sure yep. she's tried that. Sometimes for some people, that's all it takes, simple earplugs. There's one tip that's always on the, that, you know, it's on the NHS website. I always think it's a good tip. If people snore only when they're on their back, you can get them to tape a tennis ball around themselves so that the tennis ball's on their back. So if they do, every time they roll onto their back... Oh, I love that. They automatically go back onto their side. I have never heard that. That's a first. <laughs> so that's a really practical thing yeah. that can be tried. And actually, if that fixes it and this person just needs to sleep on their side, that could be all that's required. There are things like thinking more about lifestyle. So mm. relatively small amounts of weight loss in some people, if they're overweight, can make a difference. Yeah. Obviously, easier said than done but something like if somebody is overweight losing half a stone if that's something you know they feel is, is is achievable that can make a big difference smoking can make it worse alcohol certain medications or any form of drugs you know sedating drugs can make it worse and exercise can make it better not just because exercise is good for us or can help with you know can support a healthy weight but actually Lifting weights, so if you improve the muscle tone of your shoulders and your arms and your back, which are all connected to the neck and the muscles and the structures of the throat, that can actually make a difference as well. So that makes I'll always, complete sense. I'll always find a way to weave in a, an exercise <laughs> a prescription into my consultations. It. So those are kind of simple things that I'm sure this person's already read about and maybe they've tried a lot of those already. The next thing, if those aren't working, is to see the doctor, if you haven't seen the doctor, just so we can do an assessment and see, is there anything really obvious? You know, are there nasal polyps or is there anything going on that's treatable? We're on to sort of devices and things. And there are so many devices online and not all of them have evidence or have research to say that they're effective. One of the first things actually that could be tried is a mandibular device. So this right. is, it's a bit like a gum shield that athletes wear. Right. So you can have them made by the dentist, but yeah. they can be quite expensive. Or you can buy the ones that you that you do yourself. And that can help reposition the lower jaw further forwards, uh -huh. which can help alleviate snoring in some people. If you think it's a sinus problem, if the sinuses are blocked and that's causing it, using the same types of medicines that you could use for hay fever. So you can try steroid nasal sprays, but also something called nasal douching, which the whenever I refer a patient these days to the ear, nose and throat specialists at the hospital, pretty much all the recommendations come back. We recommend nasal douching. So that is oh, when you wow. brush your teeth twice a day. You also have a device that flushes out your nostrils twice a day. So you can buy them from the pharmacy. There's a device called Anil Med Sinus Rinse that's really good. It's, it's the way the bottle's designed. It just means that it you squeeze it up your nostril and it always goes in the right place. So that's something to consider if it's a nasal problem. Of course, there are so many different causes often it's the anatomy of, mm. of the throat and beyond that if you're looking for further devices have a look at the british snoring and sleep apnea society and i did want to just mention one thing on sleep apnea as well because in most cases snoring although it's awful and it can you know make people really unhappy and it can ruin relationships from a medical point of view in most cases it's not too concerning but one cause of snoring that is of concern is something called sleep apnea. Yeah. And this is when a person has apneas or pauses of breathing during sleep. And 
if somebody is very sleepy during the day and when they're snoring, they seem to hold their breath for periods or, you know, it's that they're gasping or rapidly breathing or seeming like they're out of breath. It's really important that they are assessed by a doctor because sleep apnea can increase risks of things like high blood pressure, stroke, you know, it has real medical implications as well. So it is worth seeing a GP if none of those practical measures make a difference. Yeah, definitely. You know, even if it is just for the GP to have a little look and just check you over and go through a list of of what you've tried to identify if there's anything else missing. But it is sadly, it's you know, the other thing is, and I, I do want to be honest, is that sometimes people don't really find a long-term solution that's acceptable because sometimes these devices are uncomfortable and people don't want to wear them so I do just want to be honest about that that you know it's sometimes it is people find a way to to live with it yeah realistically sometimes that is what has to happen coming up next we have a woman who's damaged her hearing from her younger years of partying at loud festivals and we run through some treatments that might help relieve chronic back pain Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We've just heard from a woman whose husband's snoring is not only affecting her sleep, but driving a wedge between their relationship. Now it's time to take a listen to a man whose career is at stake due to chronic back pain. Dear Deirdre, I've had to stop my career as a barber for now because of chronic back pain. I'm not trained to do anything else, but the problem in my lower back was so debilitating. It was all I could do not to scream out when my customers were in the chair. I'm 42 and I've had x-rays and acupuncture. I've been to sports therapists and physiotherapists, 
but nothing has helped me. Right now I'm so miserable about life. I've got nothing to look forward to but medication and trying to get comfortable. Please, can you help me? Now, this sort of long-term chronic pain is so debilitating, isn't it? So debilitating physically, mentally and socially. Yeah. This person's currently not able to to do their job of being a barber. Back pain's so common. Mm. One in six adults in the UK are suffering with back pain. That's back pain that's been affecting them for more than three months. And more than half of those people, about 60%, have severe back pain. Um, So that means that it's causing significant pain or it's actually affecting their ability to to function like this person's described. So it's really, really common. There are a number of reasons why this is so prevalent. A lot of it is due to lifestyles. You know, as human beings, we're designed to move Mm. and be in different positions throughout the day. However, most of us sit in a seated position for about nine hours a day. This person probably didn't actually because they were a barber, so standing and moving, which is not particularly great for us either. You know, ideally we would constantly be changing position from sitting to standing to walking around to moving. And I wonder whether the pandemic actually, if this person wasn't able to work for a period of time, might have affected him. And, you know, we become deconditioned. The muscles that support our trunk, that support our spine become deconditioned. And and that's why so many of us are affected by this. What I often see with patients is that they have a period of back pain. The other thing to say is in most people, it does just get better on its own, but then tends to recur. And, you know, they'll get into a course of physiotherapy. They'll have some treatment. And it gets better and they're given exercises to do and they're given an exercise regime which they do and they stay better for a few weeks a few months and then they feel better so they stop and then gradually the problem comes back again yeah guilty and yeah same <laughs> but we kind of have to think about if you are somebody who is susceptible to these periods of chronic back pain really you probably there's a high likelihood that you will be for the rest of your life mm. But don't despair, you know, you can treat it. It's a bit like having asthma. Asthma is a chronic disease. And when you have asthma, some people will use a brown inhaler every day, which is a preventer. And then they have a blue inhaler, which is a rescue treatment for when their asthma flares up. And you can think about back pain as a similar way. But instead of a brown inhaler, it's exercise. It's keeping yourself strong and your body strong so that you're less likely to have these flare ups of back pain. And then the blue inhaler, you know, that might be your, your physio. You might still have episodes, but if you're keeping yourself strong and you're keeping yourself in shape, then they're likely to be less frequent and less severe. And I always say when it comes to what exercise to do, whatever you like, whatever you will do, so whether that is walking or cycling, but if you're look, looking for something very specific, Pilates or yoga, but Pilates is probably the number one type of exercise that you can do. And, you know, you don't need to, you can do it in your living room. There's loads of Pilates programs on YouTube, on Instagram, online that are free. There are some Pilates NHS resources online as well, specifically for back pain. If yoga is more your bag, again, there are some NHS resources. I really like, there's a, it's Yoga with Adrienne. She's an American oh, lady. Yeah, and she's, she's been fantastic. doing it for years on YouTube and it's all free and she's amazing. Yeah. And you can find yoga for back pain, yoga for stress, yoga for sleep, yoga for neck pain. You know, she's done it all. And she's usually has her dog there doing it with her as well. Which is the downward sweet. dog. Yes. <laughs> so think about chronic back pain. That's what it is. It's yeah. a chronic, potentially lifelong condition that requires preventative measures for life and that preventative measure is 
is movement, exercise and staying strong. Of course, there are exceptions. You know, there's sciatica, which is a different type of back pain. That's when you've got irritation of the sciatic nerve. But that tends to have additional symptoms. It can be back pain, but also tends to be numbness or tingling or altered sensation or pain down a leg to the foot. You know, there are also what we call red flag symptoms for back pain. So, you know, anything unusual, like if you are notice altered sensation or you you notice that there's weakness in your limbs or if you're getting something like fevers or weight loss or anything else any other symptoms associated with the back pain or if the pain is sort of in the top of your back in your chest yeah or in your neck or if you're starting with back pain for the first time over the age of, of 60 or in young children Those definitely see see your gp and for this listener who who wants to obviously get back to work as a barber what would your sort of practical advice be for him I imagine it's starting off with the GP isn't it I think this yeah it sounds like this person's probably been to the GP and had physio in the past another option is osteopaths and chiropractors which usually aren't available on the NHS that would mean paying privately but they can do some sort of manipulation and give you a bit more information about what's going on. So for people who can afford it, that is something that you can consider. But I think for this person, part of it is mindset. You know, I'm confident this person will get back to their job of being a barber, but it's perhaps taken a long time for this person's body to get into the state where they've got this back pain so they can't do their job anymore. So be patient and give yourself realistic goals. So thinking, you know, can I get back to work in three months or six months? And what do I need to do? What's my gradual process of strengthening my body to enable me to get there and use the painkillers in the meantime as well, because it can be really sore when you first start exercising and building that strength when you've already got back pain. So, you know, as long as you've had the all clear that there isn't anything serious going on from your GP, you're looking at a long-term goal of getting to where you want to be with a structured plan of how you're going to get there by building up strength gradually and using painkillers to help you achieve those goals. Yeah, that's really great advice that you've got to be realistic. It will have taken a long time for you to get into that state. Yeah. So manage your recovery realistically yeah fantastic our final letter is on tinnitus Mm. dear deirdre every night i go to bed wishing i'd wake up as someone else there are things i'm grateful for my kids and my husband but i feel fed up all the time i developed tinnitus six years ago after standing too close to speakers at a festival i'm now 32 The constant ringing in my ears on top of all the other noise around me is overwhelming. It was really bad when my kids, who are aged six and four, were at home all the time during lockdown. I'm on medication as I have panic attacks most days. I've asked my doctor for advice, but he's not been much help. Is there anything else that I can do? Tinnitus can be extremely frustrating and debilitating. And as this person has described... You know, one of the main concerns is that it can really impact a person's mental health. Yeah. It's really interesting because, you know, she's very young and it sounds like she's identified what caused this, standing close to speakers at festivals, which I think I'm of that generation where I have not been very careful when it's come to to sound, to loud, to loud sounds, you know, nightclubs and festivals and, and all of that. I think young people today are a little bit more aware and careful I'm assuming based on what she said that she's been checked over by her GP but Mm. perhaps they haven't been able to give her any solutions 
tinnitus can also affect hearing as well. It can interfere with hearing real, real sounds. In case anyone doesn't know, tinnitus is the symptom of perceiving sounds that aren't actually there. So your brain's telling you that there, there's a sound present, a humming, a buzzing, a grinding. It can, it can really be anything, but it isn't really there and, it, and it's pretty much there often all the time. Interesting that she mentioned that it really bothered her when the children were home and there was probably lots of sounds going on yes. because often people with tinnitus tend to be more affected or notice it more at night when it's quiet. Yeah. If there's other things going on during the day that can sort of drown out the tinnitus. So perhaps hers is quite loud. It's definitely affecting her. My advice would be that I think she's reached the stage, she's taking medication for panic attacks linked to this, where she would definitely benefit from some psychological yeah. support. Yeah. Whilst there may not be anything that can take the tinnitus away, there are definitely programmes of psychological support that can help you improve your quality of life whilst living with tinnitus. So I definitely would think that that would be the next step for her. The other thing I would mention to her would be getting some support alongside people who are also living with yeah. tinnitus. Yeah. So there is a tinnitus organisation. You can go online and they've got lots of resources that can help, but also you can link in with other people who are going through something similar. It's the best support, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. because nobody knows what that is like yeah. for the people who yeah. are living with it. I as a doctor don't know, you know, a family don't know. People may try and understand, but they don't. And also people are very creative and very clever at coming up with solutions for things when they're actually living with them. We're in an era now within general practice where more and more practices are offering group consultations for certain types of conditions. And tinnitus would be a great one because I've sat in some group consultations. Whilst, you know, doctors might think they know it all, they don't because they don't live with it, right? Yeah. They're not the expert in living with this condition. I've sat in a room with a group of, of patients who all have the same condition. And some of the ideas that they've come up with and, you know, practical solutions are really fascinating, things that a doctor would never recommend. Yeah. So I think, you know, find your tribe of people who are who are living with tinnitus as well and, and see what solutions they yeah. can offer. The one organisation that we recommend is tinnitus.org.uk and they have that support group as well. They Brilliant. are yeah, they're really good. Thank you. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think the best thing you can do in that situation is get advice and support from other people going through the same situation. Yeah. And as you said as well, she could do with some therapy to help her yeah. deal with that anxiety that comes alongside living with tinnitus. Definitely. Definitely. Before we say our goodbyes, I wanted to ask you if you could give your patients tips mm -hmm. on how to prepare for a consultation with you what would you say to them oh <laughs> I think this is a good opportunity actually to help people because we all know that GP appointments are far too short there aren't enough GPs so it's hard to get an appointment in the first place so making the best use of that appointment I think is really important so I think write it down before you come in because often you can feel really pressured and I know when I go and see my GP as a patient, I do as well. I feel that pressure. So if there's some really important things that you'd be disappointed you didn't say, write it down and show it to us. 
and and you know and if that is the shopping list which lots of patients you know they'll <laughs> oh, save it the they infamous shopping list you're not doing your gp a favor by saving five things because <laughs> we still only have 10 minutes <laughs> uh, if you have five things book five appointments if yeah. you have two things ask for a double appointment because otherwise the risk is we try and deal with too many things in one appointment and we don't deal with them properly we don't yeah. give them the attention they deserve but if you do have a number of concerns if you can write them down before you come in and say you know these are my three different things that I'm coming in with because they might all be connected so therefore actually it might all be one consultation or one of them might seem more important than another so I'll often if a patient says look I've got five different things I'll say can you just write them down and I'll say to the patient which one of these is most important to you yes but actually if one of those things is I keep getting chest pain I'm going to say this is the most That's important one we one. need to deal with that ring today. that one I love that <laughs> write you. it down <laughs> keep a diary <laughs> thank you I did actually see now you may tell me this is unrealistic that on average GPC around 244 patients a week I mean <sighs> is that is that possible let me just do some simple maths because I imagine you've got video consultations now, phone consultations. If, if a GP is working five days a week full time, that is possible. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Yeah. You know, on a typical day, I would probably have about 40 interactions. That would be some face to face, some over the phone, some video. Maybe some would be email consults as well. That so, is a lot. Yeah. And if I go back on. to if I go back to when I first started working as a GP, which is about 12 years ago. And I was a GP trainee then, so they were a bit kinder. I think I saw oh, I'm six, glad to hear 16, that. 16 patients a day. It's still Plus, a phenomenal. Well, it's 20 with the phone calls. It's, it's almost doubled. The workload's doubled and we have less GPs, which is why we're in crisis at the moment. And, you know, just please do remember that, that your GP's on the cusp of burnout probably and we're doing the best we can. And we need more. Yeah. We do need more. Yeah. For anyone out there who is shy, embarrassed, putting off going to the doctors yeah. when they know that there's something not right with them, they can see some worrying symptoms, what would you say to them? If you're feeling really worried, and that's a very unpleasant state of mind, there are two outcomes here. You go and see the doctor and actually you get reassured that everything's fine. You get to stop worrying. You know, that's a that's a motivation in itself. You go and see the doctor and actually there is something of concern. You know, you need to be referred for tests because there is a suspicion. Well, then you're going to have to worry then. So don't worry now. Like either worry when it's the time to worry or put your worry to bed by seeing the doctor and getting reassurance. And we know that actually if we talk about cancer as an example, the vast majority of patients who come to see us because they have a sign or symptom that they think could be cancer, it isn't cancer. In the vast majority of cases, it isn't. And actually, you know, that reassurance, you can get on with your life. But in the cases where it is, early diagnosis is everything. It's not just about survival. It's about the type of treatment yeah. that you might need, how invasive that treatment might be. You know, if we take something like bowel cancer, for example, bowel cancer that's caught early can be treated sometimes with just the camera test you know to yeah. have a look to identify and remove the cells 
bowel cancer that progresses and is allowed to invade the bowel wall and potentially spread, then you might need removal of the whole section of the bowel. You might need chemotherapy. So the sooner it's found, your survival chances are better, but also, you know, the treatment that you might require will be much less. It's just not worth it. You know, we're so lucky in this country that we have the NHS. And when it comes to diagnosis and treatment of cancer, services in this country in the NHS are amazing. So don't miss out. Get it treated or get reassured and just don't sit at home worrying about it. It really is a no-brainer, isn't it? Either way, go and see your GP. But that fear of finding out, it's a real thing. You know, you're not on your own. It's very common. I think most people experience it to some extent. But don't let that fear of finding out win. You know, overcome it. Just tell you, yes, you can. You can go to the doctor. It'll be fine. And more than likely, that doctor will be able to reassure you and you can walk out, get on with your day. Yeah, and move on with life. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming in today. It's been a real pleasure having having you here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to you for listening and to Dr Zoe Williams for being such great company in sharing her words of advice on some of your health concerns. We've hopefully equipped you with a whole host of tools or whilst hopefully giving you an insight into the importance of opening up about your health concerns to your GP. If you're struggling with a problem and feel like you need some advice, the Dear Deirdre team is here to help. Just send your problems to deardeirdre at the-sun.co.uk. And remember, you can read Dear Deirdre every day at thesun.co.uk forward slash dear-deirdre or by picking up a copy of The Sun. Our advice page is packed full of support and extra resources, which can help you with your own challenges. Before you go, don't forget to click follow so you never miss an episode. And if you have a spare moment, maybe you could give us a rating and leave us a review. This boost of appreciation all helps so that other people who are seeking advice can find us on their podcast app. I'll be back next week for another episode of Answering Your Dilemmas. But for now, I'm Sally Land and this has been Dear Deirdre. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.